Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, that is our text. You can keep your Bibles open to that passage, although we will be skipping around looking at a number of uh, different passages this morning. Parents, if you want to dismiss your children now for Children's Church, you can do that at this time. We are, as a church, about to enter into a, a very crucial time of transition. Um, we've been giving you some reports on the new building last week and today. You look outside, you can see the structure going up. Uh, we learned last week that we're anticipating that we will be in the new building by April 20th, which is April, uh, which is Easter. Uh, I know April 20th is in April. Uh, Easter is April 20th, a little later this year than normal, but that's what we're expecting. That's just about five months, and uh, as we look at the changes going on, I think we can anticipate that a lot of changes are going to be taking place in our church uh, over the next several months. Worship is going to look a little different. We don't have any intent on changing anything, but we'll be in a new room, new place, Uh, one service. It's going to look different. We hope new people will come, new people uh, mean new opportunities, sometimes new challenges, uh, new ministries. Uh, We're going to have a new mortgage to pay. It's going to be a little higher than the one we've been paying recently. That means new budget demands. Uh, We're talking about planning a church. You know about that. We've been mentioning that for quite a while. We're still hoping to do that at some point in God's providence and timing. Uh, a lot of things are going to be changing in our church. And I would suggest to you today that there is probably nothing that Satan, the enemy, would like more than to take all of these changes and use them as a means to turn us all against one another. And we've been blessed at New Life with a climate of peace for, for a long time. And uh, we give God praise and thanks for that. This has been a place of peace. There have been our little skirmishes here and there, but overall, this is a place of peace. Satan would love nothing more than to turn this into a place of conflict. That's how he destroys churches. He turns the people of God against one another. Here's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacekeepers. Blessed are those who seek agreement with one another. Blessed are those who freely forgive. Blessed are those who refuse to pay back wrong for wrong. Over the next 9 to 12 months, we will have an opportunity to see if new life is going to be a bunch of peacemakers or peacebreakers. We're going to see what's going to happen. That's one of the reasons that we are beginning today a three-part sermon series called Blessed Are the Peacemakers. This uh, logo designed by Matt Nichols. Uh, Very well done. Thanks, Matt, for that. We're going to spend time today, next two Sundays, and we're going to look at various passages of Scripture that give us instruction about how to be peacemakers. And we're also going to be looking at this book. It's called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. This will uh, help us um, as we reflect on these scriptures, helps to articulate some basic principles about peacemaking. There's a couple of these books on the book table, so if you're interested in this subject or 
uh, are convicted of the need to be more of a peacemaker, I would suggest uh, that you pick one of those up. But this book is uh, <clears throat> widely used, these principles widely taught here in our denomination uh, in the PCA. And <clears throat> the whole intent of the book is to apply the gospel to the task of resolving personal conflict. And the basic idea is just this, just like as we heard the uh, assurance of pardon, that um, we are a people who have offended God. We have been estranged from God. There has been hostility in the relationship between us as God's creatures and our Creator. And yet God was gracious and merciful and kind, and He made peace with us. He sent His Son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, to reconcile us to Him. He has removed the hostility. We are no longer strangers. We've been brought near. We're His sons and daughters. God's not against us anymore. He's for us. And so this all asks the question, begs the question, if God has gone that distance to make peace with us, how can we remain in conflict with one another? How can we do that? We are called to be peacemakers. Uh, and this isn't just something that we do because we have to. There are so many benefits to being peacemakers. Uh, a church of peace has so many positive results. I mean, think of how productive ministries can be, how fruitful they can be when they don't have to deal with the distraction of personal conflict. Think of the number of people who might choose to stay at this church because they observe an atmosphere of peace here. Think of the number of families that can be held together, the number of marriages that can be saved if people practice these principles of peacekeeping. Think of how leaders can be given over to looking to the future, planning for the future, anticipating the future because they are freed from the task of uh, seeking to help people to make peace on a constant and regular basis. Think of the health, the climate of peace that can be passed on to our church plant when we eventually get to the point of doing that. We can give to that church a climate of peace that that church would learn from us. And think of the way the gospel can be adorned, because what did Jesus say? He said, how will people know that you and I are his disciples? Are they going to know that because we've got all the answers? Are they going to know that because we have all of our theology down? Are they going to know that because we have a great big building? They'll know that if we love one another. That's what Jesus said. So we're called to be peacemakers, and we're going to spend these three Sundays just thinking about how to do that. A lot of very practical direction and instruction is what we're going to be looking at here today. And uh, you heard the passage <clears throat> as Larry read it from Matthew chapter 7, where uh, Jesus says this, uh, maybe one of the most famous phrases in all the Bible, don't judge lest you be judged. Uh, people take that out of context very often. They think that means you should never make a moral judgment on anybody or anything. But if you read the passage, you will see that what Jesus is saying is that before you make a moral judgment about somebody or something, the first thing you ought to do is get the log out of your own eye. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about here this morning. The first step toward being a peacekeeper is to be willing to get the log out of your eye. What Jesus means here 
is that when you see something in somebody else that is offending you or bothering you, you think it might be sin, the very first thing you ought to do, rather than obsessing over what that person has done wrong, you ought to look at yourself and face your own faults and deal with your own sin first. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says, take the log out of your eye before you take the speck out of the other person's eye. The implication there is that what's in your eye is much bigger and more serious than what is in the other person's eye, the log versus the speck. So Jesus says, deal with your own faults before you deal with others. Now, that's pretty clear, except it might um, require a little reflection to think about exactly what that looks like. I mean, what, what does that mean practically? On the ground, in everyday life, what does that look like to get the log out of your own eye? And that's what we're going to be looking at here today. Uh, looking at a number of passages, we're not going to dwell in Matthew 7. We're just taking that get the log out of your eye, and we're going to unpack this by looking at the rest of Scripture. So there's three things we can do to get the log out of our eye in situations where conflict has arisen. So the first one is this. The first thing you can do to get the log out of your eye is to seek to avoid unnecessary conflict. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there's, there's three ways to unpack this. So, first of all, here's something you can do. Be willing to overlook minor offenses. Does the Bible tell us to do this? Yes. <clears throat> Proverbs 19, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1714, in Proverbs, says something similar. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Things are starting to heat up. An argument is starting. If it's possible, just quit. Stop. Don't let things escalate. You're offended. You're hurt. Can you overlook that? Can you seek to avoid unnecessary conflict? In other words, ask this question. Am I being too sensitive here. Uh, is it possible that in this situation I'm overreacting? Is this issue before me really something worth fighting over? That's the question. Is this worth fighting over? I mean, in my house, I happen to love loud music. I love to turn it up. I love to hear the bass booming throughout the house. When I watch movies, I want it loud and, of course, Mary has a different opinion about that. She doesn't like loud music. She doesn't like loud movies. She's constantly telling me to turn it down. She's convinced the neighbors are going to hear it, even though all the windows are shut and the doors are shut. But I mean, that's what she says. The neighbors are going to hear it uh, in the dead of winter. Um, she's worried the dogs, are, you know, their hearing is going to be affected. And, you know, I've got to be honest, that's, that's irritating to me. <laughs> I, I want to listen to things loud. It's probably because I'm losing my hearing too, but we, we won't go there. That's, that's what my wife would say. But, you know, I find myself tempted. I just want to battle it. I just, you know, she tells me to turn it down. I just want to turn it up. But I've got to stand back and ask, is this really worth fighting over? I mean, am I going to let this cause my heart to descend into bitterness? Am I going to go off in a huff? 
When I have plenty of opportunities in other ways to listen to loud music if I want, I can go get in the car and put in the CD and turn it up. I mean, there's a lot. Of, I can put my headphones in. There's other opportunities. Is this really worth fighting over? Uh, it, it irritates me, but this is an offense that I think I'm willing to overlook. And this is a way to avoid an unnecessary conflict. <clears throat> now, it does say minor offenses, so let me be clear. There are some offenses that can't be overlooked. There are major offenses. And if there's an offense where there's a wall, a wedge between you and the other person, where people's reputations are being hurt, where God is being dishonored, where there's some very serious sin issues involved, I mean, that's not maybe something you can overlook. We'll get to that in later sermons, okay? So hang on for that. We're talking about overlooking minor offenses in accordance with Proverbs 19.11. Well, another way we can avoid unnecessary conflict is look for the positive in the people that we have conflict with. Because here's what happens. When we get offended, we have this tendency, don't we, to begin to exaggerate the faults of the people that are bothering us. And we obsess and we dwell and we begin to lose sight of the virtues of the person. Their fault eclipses their virtues, even though it might be one fault and they have many virtues. We lose sight of the virtues. We begin to imagine the very worst about the person. We get a distorted perspective on the other person's motives. Here, here it is, friends. If, if you look for something bad to find in a person, I guarantee you, you'll be able to find it. But if you look for something good... If you look for virtues, if you look for things to appreciate, you'll be able to find that too. And here's what it says in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I think generally we think about this in terms of situations and circumstances, but apply that to a person. Whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable in a person, think about those things, not the thing that is bothering you. Well, another thing we can do to avoid unnecessary conflict is be prepared <clears throat> to relinquish rights. Be prepared to relinquish rights. It's true that when you're offended, you might have a right to be angry. You might have a right to complain. You might have a right to make someone pay. But friends, just because you have that right doesn't mean you have to exercise it. Just because you have the right doesn't mean you have to exercise it. Now, of course, there are many situations where you should exercise your rights to defend your property. Um, <clears throat> to press charges against somebody who's committed a crime, uh, to take back a product and get a refund when it doesn't work. I mean, you know, there are times when you should exercise your rights, many occasions when that is the case. But, but is it the case all the time that just because you have a right to do something that you ought to take advantage of it? In personal relationships, aren't there some rights that you can relinquish? Isn't this kind of central to the gospel I mean, didn't Jesus have the right to call down a legion of angels when he was standing there being interrogated by Pontius Pilate and didn't even mention that? I can call down angels right now. Didn't he have a right to do that? Bring everything to an end right there? But he didn't. 
Doesn't Jesus have a right? Doesn't God have a right to treat you right now exactly in accordance with all of your sins and transgressions? Doesn't he have a right to do that? Wouldn't that be fair? But he doesn't do that. Wouldn't God have a right to cast you off, to send you to hell? God has a right to do that. But if you're in Christ, he won't. He won't do that. Uh, God has been willing to relinquish his rights so that we can have relationship with him. And there are occasions when we should search our hearts to find out where, what are some rights that I can relinquish. It won't be easy. It's going to be painful. But this is a way to avoid unnecessary conflict. So are you in conflict today? Here's one way. Get the log out of your eye. <clears throat> Look for ways to avoid this conflict. Well, there's a second thing we can do. You can examine your heart. <clears throat> examine your heart. Um, James chapter 4, we're going to move to now. James 4, verses 1 through 2. Speak very frankly, very soberly about the way conflicts arise. James says this, <clears throat> James 4, 1 and 2, it's on the screen if you want to look up. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What James is telling us here is how conflict progresses, or maybe we should say regresses, um, to a low and destructive way. And uh, in the Peacemaker here, they set up kind of four categories that, that happen, four steps, I guess, uh, of how personal relationships conflict. The first thing is, is this. We, we find ourselves with a desire. I desire. That's what it says here in, in verse um, <clears throat> 2. Um, you desire and do not have. Uh, this is where conflict begins, with, with, with desire. Now, now, desire is not wrong. I mean, there's lots of things that we desire that are good. Uh, there's nothing wrong with desiring uh, a loving spouse, to desire um, a successful ministry, to desire that your car functions, to desire some rest and relaxation. There's nothing wrong with desiring those things. Those are good things. Uh, some things we desire are, are bad, of course, just by nature, lust, greed, envy. Those are, are negative, sinful desires. But even when we have bad des or uh, good desires, <clears throat> what James here is talking about is the desire for a good thing that gets blocked. You want something good, and you have a legitimate right to desire it. It's a reasonable thing to want, but something is standing in your way. Now, when that happens, when your desire gets blocked, there are a couple of options about how you can respond. You can be patient in affliction, as we just read. Uh, you can cast your burden on to the Lord. You can pray and ask that God would give you patience and the ability to wait on his timing to resolve this situation. You can ask for a soft heart. Uh, you can lean on God. You can lean on the Scriptures. That's one thing that you can do when a desire is blocked. The other thing you can do is you can dwell on it and become bitter and let your heart be filled with resentment. And you can convince yourself 
that there's no way I can be happy or satisfied in this life unless I have that thing or that situation or that person. Those are the options. Your heart can get obsessed and it can begin to turn from a desire to a demand. So that's the second step. I demand. This happens when the things that we would like to have becomes, become the things that we think we must have. And so here's how Ken Sandy says it in the book. The more we want something, the more we think we need and deserve it. And the more we think we're entitled to something, the more convinced we are that we cannot be happy and secure without it. When we see something as being essential to our fulfillment and well-being, it moves from being a desire to being a demand. And what we're really talking about here, and this is the way the book describes it, what we're really talking about when you go from a desire to a demand is you're talking about an idol. We're talking about idolatry. We're talking about something that we think we have to have in order to be fulfilled, in order to be happy, in order to be secure, something that we demand that we have and that we will be willing to push everything out of the way to get it. And very often it's a desire for a good thing. We talk a lot about idolatry here. You know, an idol is not necessarily a bad thing. An idol often is just a good thing that we turn into a God thing, a good thing that we elevate to a divine position and that we look to to save us and to affirm us and to justify us. So the problem is not the desire where it starts. The problem is when we begin to desire things too much. We begin to put certain things on a pedestal. These things that we think about, the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night before we go to sleep, the thing that we're obsessed with, we're constantly longing for it. That's an idol. The thing that's ruling your heart and driving you is an idol. It's like you think of the jogger. You know, there are some people that love to jog. Some joggers run to live. Right? They run so they can be in shape, so they can feel good, so they can lose weight, and so they can live. They run to live. There are other joggers who live to run. Their whole life is about running. Everything is secondary to running. Everything takes second place to the desire to run. And when anybody gets in the way of that, when anybody stands between this person and running, there's conflict. Because this desire has turned into a demand. Well, then it moves on to the third step. I judge. You want something. You decide that you have to have something. Somebody blocks that. And what does it turn into? This is what James talks about in verse 2. Fights and quarrels. Actually, in verse 1, what causes the quarrels and the fights among you? It starts with this desire that becomes a demand, and then there's judgment, there's accusations, there's speculation about the other person's motives. You don't respect me. You don't care about me. You think you're better than me. You're deceiving me. You're lying to me. And we begin to just manufacture these negative assumptions about the people's motives. Now, of course, there are times when it is appropriate to make a judgment. As I said earlier, people are never on time. There's nothing wrong with calling that out. 
Uh, a person has a right to um, expect a spouse to be faithful to him or to her. Uh, it's perfectly legitimate to expect neighbors to be quiet at 3 a.m. to keep their dogs from barking. <laughs> I think that's a legitimate judgment to make. But I'm talking here about judgments that are rooted in a speculation about the motives of people's hearts. You can't really show it. What you're, just, you're just pinning on a person the most egregious and negative motivation you possibly can. And after we go through the I judge stage, we get to the I punish stage. And you'll see that. Also, in James 4, verse 2, you desire and do not have. You've made this demand. You've been quarreling. There's been fights among you. And where does it go in verse 2? You murder. That's what leads to murder eventually. There's a desire. There's a demand. You don't get it. There's a judgment on a person. And then there's the desire to punish this is something about an idol. An idol can be so controlling, so prevailing, so dominant in a person's life that you will be willing to sacrifice everything else in your life in order to satisfy that idol. Here's how you know you really have an idol in your life. It's when you're willing to hurt people and ruin friendships and cast people off in order to get this thing. The sure sign of an idol when personal relationships take second place to your getting this thing. You know, my wife, I'm talking a lot about Mary here today, but she watches Dateline a lot, and you, know, you have all these stories about it's always a husband killing a wife, it seems. And very often what happens is the husband finds out, or the, 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 uh, the wife or the girlfriend breaks up with the guy, and then the guy will say something like this, I just decided that if I couldn't have her, then nobody could. And that's a person driven by an idol. And idols can drive a person to murder. James is telling us this. Now, I don't think there's too many of us who are tempted to murder anybody. I hope not. But there are other ways that we can punish, right? There are other ways we can punish people who stand between us and our idols. Um, curt language, withdrawing from one another giving the cold shoulder, being unwilling to look at one another in the eye, no affection, bringing up past mistakes, verbal abuse, maybe physical abuse. These are all ways that we seek to punish. And what James is saying is when we get to that point, generally it's because we desired something, we didn't get it, it was an idol, we demanded it, we judged the person, and then set out to punish them. So, friends, if you're in conflict right now, this is what I would ask you to do. Examine your heart. Look back at, at what happened. Trace the steps that led from the beginning to the place that you're at. And look for the idol that drove you to do and say the things that you've done. Look for the idol that had the influence on you during those times. And friends, I'll just tell you, you know, I'm in a relationship with somebody, and there's not peace there. And so I just want you to know, I'm not telling you to do something that I don't feel the need to do myself. Okay? I, I, I have work to do 
in a personal relationship. And so I've been convicted by these things myself. But here's a good way to get the log out of your eye. Have you been driven by an idol that has caused you to cast somebody off? Well, the last thing is to confess your offenses. Because if you go through this process honestly and carefully, and you, you really sincerely are looking for the log in your eye, you're likely to find one. And, and when you do, it could be time to confess. Isn't it ironic that you were looking to go after somebody to make them confess, and it could be that you realize that you're the one that has to, to confess, to, to, to acknowledge your sins to others. Well, does the Bible tell us to do that? Of course. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. James, again, chapter 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Well, you want to know a good way to reconcile with a person? Pray with them. Get together and pray with them. I, I didn't even say necessarily for them, although that would help, but to pray with them, to be in an atmosphere of prayer with people that you're set against. God uses that to soften hearts. Confess your sins to one another. Now, we've got to talk about this a little bit, though, because what, what makes a good confession? You know, probably all of you have been in a situation where someone confessed a sin to you, and you just, it just, it just didn't feel sincere. I mean, one of the worst confessions that I've ever seen was offered by my little seven-year-old niece, uh, Faith, who was staying at our house a couple years ago. And uh, I don't remember exactly what she did, but she was, she was just being really rude and uh, just saying a lot of nasty things. And so, um, and I said, Faith, I think you need to apologize for these things. And, and she wouldn't do it. And we just went back and forth and back and forth. <clears throat> and she was just digging in her heels. And then finally, I was looking at her and she went, I'm sorry. I mean, didn't even move her lips. Certainly didn't look me in the eye and said it as quietly as she possibly could. Um, That's an insufficient confession. I I didn't hold that against my seven-year-old niece. That's that's a good start. But, you know, some of us can be kind of like children like that, can't we, when it comes to confessions? You know, we just do it in the most insincere way. We just do it to get the person off our back. That's why we confess. Well... How do we confess well? Some principles for a good confession. Uh, what Ken Sandy here calls the seven A's of confession. Okay, you might want to write these down because they'll be helpful to you, um, either now or in the future. The first one is this: address everyone involved. Address everyone involved. If you're at home, you blow up, you say some things you regret to your wife or your husband, and the kids are watching, you need to apologize to your wife or husband, and you need to apologize to the kids too. You need to apologize to everyone who's been affected by what you've done. Now, there's a difference between heart sins and social sins. A heart sin is just uh, you know, feelings of angry, anger or, or rage maybe inside your heart, but you haven't actually acted on it. I don't think that needs to be confessed to the person. It needs to be confessed to God, but maybe not to the person. But social sins, where a number of people are affected, uh, you need to acknowledge those. 
uh, to everyone who has been affected. Okay? Um, avoid disclaimers when you make your apology. Um, you know, here's the way we do it. Well, perhaps I was wrong. Uh, maybe I could have done better. Uh, I'm sorry if I hurt you. Right? All of these confessions, they're designed to kind of get you off the hook. They suggest that you're not quite sure that you did anything wrong. But look, if you just take out the word perhaps and maybe and if, and you've got a good confession, I was wrong. I could have done better. I'm sorry I hurt you. Those are good confessions. Avoid the disclaimers, the ifs, the buts, and the maybes. Admit specifically the offense that you've committed. Just, not just a broad, I'm sorry, although that's a start, but a better confession is to say, I'm sorry that I criticized you in front of other people. I'm sorry that I've been cold and distant and removed from you. I'm sorry that I didn't keep my promise. Be specific about what it is so that the person knows exactly what it is you're sorry for. And then that moves to acknowledging the hurt, not only being specific about the sin, but acknowledging seeking to empathize with how your sin affected the person emotionally. Acknowledge how that person was wounded. So you could say, um, I'm sorry that I criticized you in front of other people. You must have felt very embarrassed. I'm sorry that I've been cold and distant from you. You must have been feeling very lonely. I'm sorry that I didn't keep my promise to you. You must wonder if I'm trustworthy. Acknowledge the hurt in the wound that's been created. Uh, five, accept the consequences. Accept the consequences. Uh, apologizing, being specific, acknowledging the hurt, that, that's all good, but there will be consequences to that. And uh, sometimes it's our tendency to think that once we get the apology out that everything ought to be exactly back to normal, but not necessarily. There might be damages that you have to pay for. There might be certain freedoms that you lose for a time. There might be a while where you have to earn back trust from the other person. Things will not be restored to normalcy immediately, so accept the consequences humbly. Uh, six, alter your behavior. Be willing to make some changes in your lifestyle and in your behavior that will go some distance to keep the wrong from happening again. And not only get that in your mind, but tell the other person. Explain to that person what you're going to do. Uh, I, I've decided that I'm going to set up these boundaries, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm going to get rid of that, and I'm going to go meet this person. Here's what I'm going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. Explain that to the person. And if you can't think of what you're going to do, then ask the person, what should I do? What would you suggest that I do to keep me from falling into this offense again? And then be willing to alter your behavior accordingly. And then lastly, ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. I didn't say pressure for forgiveness. I didn't say force the person to forgive. Don't be high-handed about it. Humbly ask, would you forgive me? 
And you might have to give time for the Spirit to work and to soften uh, the heart for that to happen. This is a good way to confess our offenses. Well, friends, uh, this, is, uh, this is not easy. And I know it's, it's, it seems painful to have to do some of these, particularly when you feel like you are on the receiving end of a raw deal. <clears throat> um, but we're not done yet, okay? We've got two more sermons to go. So there is a place for confronting people <laughs> for their sins and their offenses. We'll, we'll get there. There is a place for learning how to forgive, and we'll get there as well. But uh, there's a really good movie called The Straight Story. It came out in 1999. It's a true story <clears throat> about a guy named Alvin Strait. And elderly guy, 73 years old, lived in Iowa, and he was estranged from his brother who lived in Wisconsin. And so for a number of years, there was not peace in that relationship. And this guy, Alvin Strait, again, this is a, a true story, he... Uh, learned that his brother had a stroke, and so he figured, I'm going to have to reconcile with this man. But the problem was, Alvin Strait couldn't drive. He was not blind, but he suffered from um, some poor eyesight, couldn't get a driver's license. And so he bought a John Deere tractor and got on the tractor and traveled 240 miles from Iowa to Wisconsin to reconcile with his brother. Tractor topped at five miles an hour. (laughs) Took him six weeks to seek out his brother. Now, doesn't that highlight how reconciliation is not always easy? That it can be painful. That it can require sacrifice. Sacrifice of comfort. Sacrifice of pride, sacrifice of control. But friends, isn't this at the very heart of the gospel? That our God has gone a whole lot farther than 240 miles to reconcile with us. He's gone from heaven to earth, from the throne room to this planet in the person of his son to pursue people who were estranged from him, and it required pain and sacrifice, the sacrifice of his son, the shedding of blood on the cross, and he did it. He made peace with us. We are at peace with God. Isn't that wonderful? All of our offenses, all of our selfishness, all of our bitterness and resentment, all of our pride and self-centeredness, all of our hard-heartedness, all forgiven. All forgiven. Friends, how can we be in conflict with one another when God has done this for us? This is why Ken Sandy said this, at the top of your order of worship, Jesus in the high priestly prayer, you know, he didn't pray that we'd be happy. He didn't pray that we'd never suffer. He didn't pray that we would have all of our rights met. But he did pray that we'd get along with one another. So let's be peacemakers. Let's pray. God, thank you so much 
um, for making peace with us. God, we don't have the power to do this. We don't. We confess it. We're weak. We can't do this. It's impossible. We've been hurt so badly. So please give us grace. Thank you that in James you say that you give more grace and that your grace is wider and deeper than our sin. Thank you for that. Enable us to be peacemakers for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.